0: So the United States has two geographic parts, the places our economy and culture tell us to get out of, and the places we're told to seek in order to make it. But I think there's a shift going on beneath the surface of our national story. It's a return to, or a refusal to leave, the least glamorous corners of this country. I'm talking about the small towns, rural lands, working-class communities that national headlines say are dying in order to fight for the place that feels like home. I'm Sarah Smarsh and this is The Homecomers.
1: I still have not been able to drive down the road where my old farm is. I. Can't make myself do it. I can see it in my head and I dream about it. I miss farming, I miss the act of having my hands in the dirt and growing something.
0: In 2018, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released data suggesting that male farmers in 17 states died of suicide at twice the rate of the general population in 2012. Even that number could be an underestimate since the study didn't include several major agricultural states. And also because an unknown number of farmers disguised their suicides as farm accidents. Journalist Debbie Weingarten wrote the seminal 2017 investigative report on farmer suicide for The Guardian that sparked a national discussion about mental health in rural and agricultural areas. She's a former vegetable farmer herself in the desert southwest, and she's written for The New York Times, The Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Her exposé on discrimination against black sugarcane farmers was nominated for a 2019 James Beard Award. Her work hit a nerve by revealing the dark side of agricultural life, the hopelessness that farmers might feel as family farms go under after generations held on, and the isolation that can come with geographic remoteness and the often stoic culture of those rural places. It's a health epidemic national media had previously missed, and it's one Weingarten was equipped to tell because she'd lived it firsthand in southern Arizona— She joined me during the spring of 2018 from Tucson, where she lives. I wanted to first talk to you a little bit about your life and experience that has shaped your perspective on these issues. Could you tell me how you would describe the economic or class background of your childhood?
1: Well, I was born in rural Alabama on a horse property, though pretty quickly my family moved to the Midwest for my dad's job. And we we lived in Missouri and then we settled in the suburbs outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I did my growing up. And my dad had a white collar job and my mom was a social worker and we were just fine financially. So it really wasn't until adulthood that I experienced living below the poverty
0: line. We're talking today about rural America. You were a vegetable farmer in rural Arizona, specifically. Tell me about that landscape. So much of your writing deals in the natural and the flora and fauna of those places. Mm -hmm. So, how would you describe just the sensory experience of the rural Arizona landscape that you know?
1: It's wild and beautiful. You know, there are dust devils and rattlesnakes and saguaro cactuses. And we get a summer monsoon season that smells incredible and it, it like washes out roads. You know, entire roads just are gone, especially in rural Arizona. The area of the Sonoran Desert is really biologically diverse, it's a migratory corridor for lots of species. We have the only known male jaguars in the United States wandering around in our mountains. We also, you know, have very close proximity to the U.S.-Mexico border, which means that the Border Patrol has a large presence. So, you know, some rural residents have to stop at Border Patrol checkpoints literally just to go to the grocery store. So that plays a large role in just what it feels like to be in rural Arizona. There's also a migrant crisis in the desert. So, you know, migrants who were pushed into the desert by the Border Patrol's program called Prevention Through Deterrence pushed migrants into the desert, hoping that that would just prevent them from crossing. And thousands of migrants have died crossing the Arizona desert. So all of that's happening in our backyard. And then additionally, water is like the most precarious resource here in the desert. So in some rural areas, Wells are running dry. Farmers and other rural folk are trying to navigate what that means for their future. There's California nut growers flocking to Arizona to plant trees and sucking down the aquifer. So
0: it's just this wild place. And I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Your love comes through in your writing, and so does, I think, the kind of ominous sense that you just conveyed. There's always kind of a palpable sense of pressure, even danger. You have written about the migrant deaths that you just referenced. You have written about some of your own physical threats that you've experienced in a rural place in a domestic context. I wanted to turn to a piece that you wrote for Guernica, which was nominated for a 2018 Pushcart Prize called The Hunted. And if you wouldn't mind reading, there is a passage that begins, out the back door of our farmhouse.
1: Out the back door of our farmhouse, my father-in-law builds a treehouse in the arms of an old mesquite. Across the drive are more mesquites, Gnarly things that drip with spring sap, where the contractor kills an entire nest of baby rattlers one summer. The husband and I paint our bedroom blue. It is lighter than intended, an anemic pastel color that resembles a daycare. Sometimes I chase those walls all day long. They're gray at dawn and blue by day, but at night they're black like everything else like the desert outside, like the sky over the little Rincon mountains, like the moment I realize I have to leave. But while I will leave my husband for good one sunny winter day, this is a story about middles, about the kind of pressure that builds slowly, a kettle set on the stove just beginning to sing. The desert sun swelters us, bleaches work shirts, burns cheeks, splits tomatoes down the middle. There is always one more row to weed, one more bed to harvest before the heat, the spring winds, the javelina, the first hard freeze. A farm is a sanctuary. A farm is a war.
0: As someone who I spent most of my upbringing on a wheat farm, we also raised livestock and, and a few other crops west of Wichita. That, that so incredibly captured, I would say, both the, the quiet that can come with those places and then also the cause for high alert. So Mm -hmm. it's a very particular sort of attentiveness that comes with the rural life, and that's both mental and physical. Talk to me about what a striking line, a farm is a sanctuary, a farm is a war. For the the vast majority of people in this country Mm -hmm. who haven't occupied that space, what are you getting at with that dichotomy?
1: Well, I think I meant it in a couple of different ways. I mean, obviously what was going on in my household I was in an abusive marriage, and so there were times when it just felt like, you know, I was living in this kind of seething box. But then just the cycles, the birth and death cycles on a farm and just the outside trying to come in constantly, Hmm. the wildlife, the javelinas, the mountain lions, you know, something killing our chickens, something eating all of our lettuce, and kind of how hard we had to fight to keep everything out felt violent at times. There was, you know, lots of squashing hornworms and watching their guts explode and slaughtering a goat that was sick and, you know, it's it's brutal as much as it's beautiful. My own experience as a first generation farmer feels so minimal compared to farmers who've been at this for generations. But I will say that I think my experience of experiencing anxiety and depression and isolation and essentially, you know, needing to reach out for help demonstrates the fact that there are real barriers to entering farming under fair terms and and being able to get a fair shake at, at, you know, making it financially. Mm. Um, We do know that in the next 20 years, two thirds of our farmland is going to change hands. And so we're going to need more farmers. And some people say, well, maybe they should stop farming. (laughs) And I don't think that's the answer. I think we have to set up a system that supports farmers better. You know, I literally could not figure out how we were going to save money for emergencies or, you know, possibly retire someday on the income that we were making from the farm. We qualified for food stamps while we were growing food for other people, which just felt like this strange irony. Mm -hmm. Um, We couldn't afford to buy the food that we were growing. So when I began digging into this idea of what it means to support the well-being of people who are farming, that's when I came into contact with these farmer suicide numbers
0: and they just, every community has, has suicide stories we do have hard numbers that indicate there is a very current crisis about mental health among agricultural workers. Let's hone in on this aspect of the, the economic hardship that is that is certainly a potent feature of the, the broader story of what the well-being of the people who grow and raise our food. Your personal story, which you bear witness to some extent, and some uh, incredible farmers who vulnerably shared their stories for a piece that you wrote in December 2017 for The Guardian. These all suggest and bear witness to economics being the heart of the issue Mm -hmm. that you are addressing. So people are familiar, of course, with the farm crisis, as it's often called, that is associated with the 1980s. Farm aid came out of that. Farming kind of had a moment. I find as someone who I was born in 1980 and my life kind of tracks with that crisis continuing, but but then perhaps the attention to it falling away and a sense within those communities that are struggling, not only being disadvantaged economically and having an uphill battle, but no one really caring. (laughs) Tell me about your vegetable farm and just the the day-to-day life of that. For people who don't understand like how does all that work where does the money come from what are the prices that it depends on
1: well so my situation will be different from the wheat farm that you grew up on in that we were producing entirely for the direct market so we were going to farmers markets we were selling to restaurants we had a community supported agriculture program so we were you know direct to consumer which cuts out the middleman and more of the money goes to the farmer it's a good model and it was still very difficult to make a living. We can farm pretty much year-round here, so there's never an off-season, which is a really unique aspect of farming here. When I talk to farmer friends in other places, they attend to some of the like building projects or maintenance issues or sitting by their wood stove ordering their seeds throughout the winter. They're also organizing Mm -hmm. together. And I think rural organizing is in my mind, a heart of farming communities. Mm. And when I think about the 1980s and the stories that I've been told from people who survived it, that organizing was the lifeblood Mm -hmm. of those communities who were struggling.
0: It struck me, you know, you were saying the kind of mind-blowing irony of the fact that you were creating things that you couldn't afford to buy. I have a kind of um, industrialized agriculture metaphor that takes that even a little further from my own life. So we were wheat farmers. We we raised the grain that went into most of the bread that this country eats and, and around the world to some extent. And my grandma and I, we were in grocery shopping terms in a food desert. <laughs> many rural people are just by nature of uh, geographic proximity. We lived about 40 miles west of Wichita, so we weren't so remote as many rural communities. We were able to get into what is, you know, a relatively small city in national terms, but the biggest one in Kansas with relative ease. And we would go to the day-old bakery and buy like the discount bread. It was often like Wonder Bread with an orange sticker on it that said 69 (laughs) cents. You know, I didn't realize it until years later, but I was thinking like, wow, we were, in terms of just a corporatized food system. We were at the level of the earth, beginning the process with grain. By then, of course, the seed itself was moving toward a monopolized system and a monoculture. But we didn't know it. You know, we were just trying to get by. And then we end up eating this highly processed white flour, mushy wonder bread. We, of course, had the skills to bake loaves of bread, and sometimes we did, but Jesus, we're not going to be out there like milling the flour. (laughs) This passage from your December 2017 Guardian piece on the suicide crisis and phenomenon among agricultural workers really struck me as getting at these paradoxes. There's a paragraph that starts We were growing food but couldn't afford to buy it.
1: We were growing food but couldn't afford to buy it. We worked 80 hours a week but we couldn't afford to see a dentist, let alone a therapist. I remember panic when a late freeze threatened our crop, the constant fights about money, the way light swept across the walls on the days I could not force myself to get out of bed. Farming has always been a stressful occupation because many of the factors that affect agricultural production are largely beyond the control of producers, wrote Roseman in the journal Behavioral Health Care. The emotional well-being of family farmers and ranchers is intimately entwined with these
0: changes. Later down in the piece, you uh, have a quote from a member of the Kansas Farmers Union. He's talking about all of these immense issues, and he actually laments, this is Don Teske of the Kansas Mm -hmm. Farmers Union, I'm watching with serious dismay the industrialization of the agriculture sector and the depopulation of rural Kansas. In rural America, he adds, maybe the war is lost. That is, oh gosh, such a bleak... Uh, assessment. And I always find in your writing both the honest despair and glimmers of hope. So where do you think we are with just the American farm, the small farm, the family farm in this big economic context that would seem to have so many hurdles and barriers that are prohibitive if we ever want to bring that way of life back as something that is remotely feasible?
1: I heard a quote the other day that was talking about how the structure of a system determines its behavior, and I've been thinking a lot about that because I've been thinking about how we structure agriculture in this country. It is harder and harder and harder to be a small-scale farmer in rural spaces. You know, the depopulation that Don Teskey was talking about is something he's seeing in his day-to-day life and he's seeing his neighbors moving away and his children choosing not to farm because they experienced the stress of the essentially the 80s farm crisis and they're traumatized from that. Mm. One of the the glimmers of hope, in my mind, is that there was a Washington Post article that came out. It was talking about how for only the second time in a century, the population of farmers ages 35 and under is growing. Mm. And so that feels hopeful to me. It feels like there are people who want to take the reins, who want to farm maybe in a different way. But I also think that we owe them A system that's going to support them. And part of that is mental health support.
0: It struck me your use of the term trauma just now that people who are alive and still farming now were traumatized by the 80s farm crisis. One of the farmers you feature in that piece, also in Kansas, his house caught fire in the early 80s, which essentially left his family homeless for a time and then. Right after that, we come into just the immense financial troubles of the farm crisis. Interest rates doubled. Farmers were filing for bankruptcy and underwater with their mortgages. And and this farmer that you spoke with did file for bankruptcy. They lost 265 acres. Here's a paragraph from your article. Much of the acreage lost to the Blaskies sits across the road from the 35 acres they retain today. Blasky says, I can't leave our property without seeing what we lost you can't imagine how that cuts into me every day. It just eats me alive. And he said he has thought of suicide every day for something like 25 years since. Right. Dr. Roseman, who features in the,
1: the article as well, who I reached out to for help when I was farming and then was able to go visit him as a journalist um, this past year, has a really incredible way of thinking about and talking about farming. I think as Americans, on average, we're three generations removed from the farm, but it's still in our DNA somewhere. It's still in our bodies. You can take a kid to a grain bin and ask them to smell it, and they they have this this reaction of just joy. Mm -hmm. What happens when you put your hands in the soil? There is something, I think, still in us that wants to connect to the land. And I think the the passage you read about John Blaskey, he is traumatized from the farm crisis, absolutely. He's traumatized every time he has to drive down his driveway and turn right onto the road and see the trees that he planted with his wife before he lost that piece of property it is every day a re-traumatization and i think that if we're just tapped into our empathy that i'm not sure how anybody could not empathize with that
0: you know i write about my family frequently and and i find that farmers just as an idea is something that for so many people exists as a stereotype or a caricature that it, it's easy to to not care about an an objectified or even a Uh, fetishized type of person. But when we see human beings, that's where the empathy can be tapped.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think either you see farmers painted as the stoic, hardworking, white male farmer with a big hat in a truck. And then along with that, you get the pastoral scenes on like the butter container, you know, tapping into this obsession that I think America has with rural nostalgia, that's out of touch. It's equally out of touch to paint farmers and rural people as backwards racist rednecks that all voted for Trump. In my own rural community, there were gay people and conservatives and Quakers and remnants from the hippie communes in the 1970s. I mean, I would say it was not racially diverse, but there were a lot of different kinds of people living in this rural community. There was, among everybody, this very deep value of being connected to the land, having an autonomous lifestyle, working outside under the sky, doing things for ourselves. And so I think this deeper connection between people and the land feels like it's missing in the media. I think we need more rural journalists that are telling stories that demonstrate rural people as real and complex and and vibrant and innovative, the same farmer who turns down his road every day and sees the piece of property that he lost told me a story about a time when the tractor rolled over his foot and he got stuck beneath it. He took the tractor apart, he got his foot out, he put it back together and he drove home. And if that's not problem solving and, you know, absolute intelligence... I want to hear stories about rural organizing efforts, farmers who shut down farm auctions and demonstrate in front of the Capitol because I know that there are those stories. You know, I want to hear stories about what rural America is getting right.
0: Yeah, and the irony of this, I think, or one of them is that Not seeing yourself reflected back to you with some integrity and wholeness in popular culture or the news media, in my experience, that absolutely is tied up with the more negative feelings that can come with occupying those places. We talked about economics, but there's also the isolation, the stigma of mental struggle, lack of access to care. All of these are sort of pieces of a puzzle in which a population not just feels forgotten, but actually kind of has been.
1: Yeah, I was just interviewing a... um rural health worker the other day, and she was talking specifically about the importance of framing stories in a strength-based way. And she was saying that they're hearing from rural communities that businesses are saying, you know, we don't want to invest in rural America because the opioid epidemic is dominating headlines and there's so much dystopia Mm. about rural America. So yeah, I think it's interesting to think about the cause and effect, right, Mm -hmm. of the media and resisting that.
0: I think this would be a good time to ask you about some of your efforts in changing some of these narratives. I know you you co-founded the Farmer Education Resource Network. Tell me about that.
1: That project started when I was farming. I would say that the bottom line is that we were trying to, A, train young and beginning farmers to farm in the arid lands in the southwest. We have been working really hard in our community to provide a voice for farmers, to make sure that farmers are at the table where food systems decisions are being made. There's that phrase if you're not at the table then you're on the menu. Mm. And you know, that's true for marginalized communities especially. And we were also trying to figure out how we could shift the culture so that we saw farmers as valuable and as experts. And we were trying to figure out how we could ask the community to pay farmers for their time as experts and teachers. I mean, it, it feels obvious that we would pay farmers for their time, right? Mm-hmm. Farmers' time is is essential.
0: But just that little, you know, tweak and sort of the cultural mindset. It strikes me, your use of the term table as a metaphor. It, I sometimes chuckle when I see, quote-unquote, farm-to-table restaurants in very privileged spaces and think to myself, my farmer family could never afford to eat there. There is this sense among, even among people who feign to care about food as something that should be grown with integrity. They they don't necessarily care as much about the people who are growing it for them.
1: Right. I think there's all of this talk about food miles. You know, how far has your food traveled and carbon footprint and all of this stuff? And it's, you know, the well-being of the people who power the food system is somehow not part of that conversation. Yeah, And absolutely. that has been really frustrating for me and kind of become my
0: soapbox in this space. These things are are hard to parse and quantify, but your piece that was in The Guardian on specifically the uh, suicide epidemic within that culture, one of the wonderful outcomes, it would seem, is that you mentioned Dr. Roseman, who is both a psychologist and a farmer in Iowa. You shared in a subsequent piece that he has been basically hearing from people all over the country who want to somehow help this issue.
1: When the article came out in December, there was about maybe 24 hours after it came out when I didn't hear from Dr. Roseman and I was starting to get concerned. (laughs) And um, when he finally reached out to me, he said, I'm so sorry, I haven't been in touch. I have, you know, the phone's ringing off the hook. And um, it didn't stop. It, It has not stopped you know, it's been over three months now. He has received, I don't know what the the number is. At one point, I think it was four or 500 messages, phone calls, a quarter of which he was estimating were from farmers who were reaching out for help. So that's one thing that has been very moving. There have just been really interesting partnerships. Other industries that are propped up by agriculture like people who sell tractors or seeds lenders are interested in becoming part of the movement to reduce the stigma of mental health in agriculture and rural communities know how to look for the signs of somebody who's struggling and start to advocate for programs and funding for those programs that support the mental health of rural people that's been really exciting i mean there've been Conferences that have included mental health and well-being workshops there was a state representative from Washington State, J.T. Wilcox, who is himself a fourth generation farmer, but he had no idea about the high rate of suicide. And he immediately introduced legislation that would provide a crisis tool for farmers in Washington State, as well as create a task force for further diving into this issue and studying this issue. So that was just signed into law. And then a federal bill was introduced into the U.S. House of Representatives addressing this on a federal level. So that's huge. It's called the Stress Act, and it would reauthorize the Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network, which is actually based on a program that Dr. Roseman ran for many years. And it was Approved as part of the 2008 Farm Bill, but never funded. And so now there's sort of this second chance, you know, to fund this program and to provide behavioral health support, counseling,
0: crisis hotlines for farmers across the United States. What else? I know there's, it seems that the hotlines have been quite effective in many agricultural states. I saw that. Tennessee is training highway patrol officers in suicide prevention. That's a largely rural state where highway patrol officers have frequent cause to intersect with rural communities. What what does the big picture solution look like?
1: One thing that is really important when talking about rural mental health, and especially among farmers, is that... The therapists and the, you know, the counselors that that go into these rural spaces need to be versed in the language of agriculture. So they need to understand the seasonality. They need to understand at what times of the year someone might feel more stress. They need to understand the language. You know, community health workers and churches and, you know, feels like there's this need for mobilization on the super, super local level in communities and I think this reflects what happened in the eighties. People were checking on each other. Mm. People were knocking on doors and saying, Are you okay? and opening conversations and hosting potlucks and showing up to banks with each other and there has to be awareness on the ground. And then I think about this all the time. There, you know, only one percent of the, the American population is farming. But, you know, we all depend on farmers. And then there are all of these other industries that also depend on agriculture. And what would that be if you added all of that up? You know, what percentage of our workforce depends? I mean, it's the entire food system depends Mm -hmm. on farmers. So we're all in this. And I feel like there is this call to action for consumers as well. If you're just an eater and you're just on the, you know, on the eating side of the table, you can pick up your phone and call your representative and say, I care about farmers and I care what's happening in the farm bill negotiations. I care
0: about rural mental health. So I think there are lots of ways to plug in. Yeah, you wrote in the Guardian piece, quote, Even for those of us not farming, farmer suicide touches us too. The crisis lives on our supermarket shelves, in our bags of rice and flour, in our steaks and cotton t-shirts, the ethanol powering our cars. We are not removed from it. Right. And I
1: think as Dr. Rosman says, farmers are our most important agricultural natural resources. And so the same way that we're caring about, you know, air quality and soil quality and topsoil and all of this stuff, I mean, we have to think about the humans (laughs) that are the natural resources that are, you know, at the foundation of this system that affects us all, that props up our entire
0: society. To talk about John Blasky again from your piece, something that really moved me in the story is John, in dealing with his own um, mental struggles and anguish, paints as a kind of therapeutic Mm -hmm. thing that he can do for himself, a kind of self-healing. He paints farmscapes onto saw blades which is a kind of folk art that I have seen before. I don't, by the way, use that term disparagingly. So Mm -hmm. um, he also has had counseling and medication. But this struck me in your story. He craves conversation with farmers who know what he's experiencing. And he says, I would really give about anything to go and talk to people. If any one person thinks they're the only one in this boat, they're badly mistaken. Well,
1: he does not own a computer. And I I just, I've actually been printing out We had to print out our article and send it to him in the mail. Um, He didn't have a way to read it. And I talked to him a couple weeks ago and said, would you be interested in getting a computer? And he, he said he would think about it. And the reason I was asking him about that is because recently... Uh, An organization in Canada called Do More Agriculture launched, and it launched specifically to remove the stigma of mental health in agriculture, specifically in Canada, and they have taken to social media big time. They have hashtags, they have a really active Twitter, they have farmers all across Canada just taking like 30-second videos of themselves talking about how it's okay to ask for help, sharing some of their struggles that they've gone through. And, you know, it's it's farmers out in their field, farmers who look very cold mm-hmm. <laughs> to me in Arizona, all bundled up in front of the tractor talking about mental health. I have also seen one of a farm wife uh, who struggled with postpartum depression on top of the financial stress of the farm. Putting it out there and being open about it I see hope with that. I think that's a really interesting way to connect to one another, especially across a rural landscape. But you have to have the resource of the internet mm-hmm. and a computer, and you have to know how to
0: use it. And it strikes me that maybe for someone who is still living an agricultural lifestyle and for whom there is such a physical aspect to life that sitting down um, in front of a screen is, I could see how that would be particularly off-putting. You mentioned Canada as a place that is experiencing a similar uh, suicide crisis. An Australian farmer dies by suicide every four days. This is also in the UK. About once a week, a farmer takes his or her own life. Suicide every two days among French farmers since nineteen ninety five, two hundred and seventy thousand farmers have died by suicide in India. So we are really talking about a global phenomenon. I wondered if you could talk some about why are the numbers so high? social
1: isolation, as we've mentioned, the potential for financial losses, which we've also mentioned, there's also a cultural element to it, being very proud and unwilling to to ask for help. I mean, it's hard to ask for help. And then that also intersects with the fact that even if you ask for help, There is limited access and resources in rural areas to address mental health. So, I mean, there's hospital closures happening. There's clinics closing up. The infrastructure of rural America is changing. And so there's less opportunity for intervention. I think ultimately the biggest thing to take away perhaps is that there are so many factors that are beyond the farmer's control. I mean, weather catastrophe, market prices, you're sort of at the mercy of Mother Nature and this economic system that often does not make sense. I did want to mention, because it's related, that the projected median farm income for 2018 is negative $1,316. And it's been like that for years. Mm -hmm. So farmers have to have outside income often. Somebody has to go get a job and bring home the benefits and bring home a salary. And the result of that is it's really fractured the farm family. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas people used to work together, farming used to be very much a family business. And when that became economically non-viable, the ramifications of somebody having to go work and sometimes live in town, I think rural families have experienced a psychological and sociological crisis Mm -hmm.
0: because of that. That's such a good point that we frame this in public terms necessarily often, but ultimately, just like any other um, public experience, the reality is lived at the most intimate and private level. Gosh, I hate it when people say, well, if things are so bad, why don't they just move? Well, you know not only does that mean leaving every person that you've ever loved it also means leaving something that is so deep in you in your blood for generations perhaps and one thing i heard when i was reporting
1: especially in iowa and kansas and you know meeting all of these century farmers who have been at this for so many generations there is this huge fear of failure you know if you fail quote unquote and you lose your land you let down your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents and their legacy and all of those intangibles, you know, the place where you were born, the place where you saw your children grow up, the place where potentially some of your family members are buried even. And you also let down your children for those farmers who are hoping to pass on their land and their farm business. So we're talking about In some ways, a really spiritual crisis, and I'm not a religious person, but like using the term spiritual to think about what happens when somebody is separated from something that they that they love, you know, to their bones, like land.
0: Like, how do you measure that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that you might have just landed on the aspect of the uh, rural experience and the farming experience that is, in fact, universal. Which is, if you could think of that place or that land or that farm, those animals, that responsibility as a relative of sorts. That is something that even a person who grew up in a city could understand the anguish of leaving behind. I'm curious if you yourself have experienced the departure from farming as a, to use your term, spiritual crisis.
1: My experience is complicated by the fact that when I left the farm, I also left a marriage. And so I feel like I can't untwist that thread Mm. and I'm not sure where one starts and one begins. I still have not been able to drive down the road where my old farm is. I can't make myself do it. I can see it in my head and I dream about it. I miss farming. I miss the act of having my hands in the dirt and growing something. I miss how hard it is on my body I miss being outside every day. So there are things about it that, you know, I crave sometimes. And then there's the dark part of it that I don't miss at all. So it does feel like it was a bit of a spiritual crisis for me in that I was also a new mom. So I was sort of, I felt so incredibly alive and so incredibly dead at the same time. I mean, I've never been so sleep deprived. You know, you're split open by birth. It's just this totally amazing crazy experience. And so so yeah, I guess I just again like don't know how to separate those experiences from one another.
0: Mm. Is the farming experience something that you would wish for your own children?
1: I would. I would wish it for them. And I think that's why I'm working really hard to figure out how to make farming viable, especially for, you know, for the small scale growers who are involved in the direct market, how it can be possible for specifically young people to enter into this industry and be able to, you know, not only survive, but have a really high quality of life. You can't put beautiful sunsets and the feeling of being outside in your gas tank, like you need to be able to pay for gas and get to the farmer's market and take care of yourself and your body and your mind. So I wish for my children the ability to have a connection to land and to know what it means to produce something with your hands and if they choose farming, then I'm absolutely behind it. And I'll just keep working to make sure that, that it's a viable life.
0: We just got done having a long conversation about the mental pressures and challenges that, that face this community that is a story that is told through suicide numbers. I think that for some people listening, they might be astounded that you would defend it as a dream nonetheless when you talk about that life becoming viable, and this is something you're organizing at the community level, what does that look like?
1: I think it looks like farmers being paid fairly for what they grow. You know, paying farmers for their time as experts and teachers, and seeing farmers as conservationists and stewards of the land, funding invested into rural communities so that there are resources to support farmers you know, investing in the digital divide, you know, trying to close that divide, investing in education and training resources for new farmers. I think it would just look like being able to make a living and feeling like even if the weather took out your crop one year, your children aren't at risk, that the food on your table isn't at risk, that there's a web of resources that will catch you if you fall.
0: Debbie Weingarten is a writer and editor based in Tucson, Arizona. Her farming and food writing has been featured in numerous national publications, including the Best of Food Writing Anthology. She works with the Female Farmer Project and is currently a communications fellow with the Center for Community Change. So since Weingarten and I spoke in the spring of 2018, that pending federal legislation we talked about to reestablish the Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network passed as part of the new Farm Bill, that potentially allocates $10 million a year for the next five years to address mental health. And Washington State unanimously passed a bill providing bilingual mental health support to people in ag. Our production team is audio editor Jesse Brenneman in Montana, composer Daniel Hart in California by way of Texas, web designer Tamika Pittman in New York by way of Colorado, illustrator Angie Pickman in Kansas, and communications manager Kendra Bozarth in New York by way of Kansas. I'm your host and executive producer Sarah Smarsh in Kansas. Hey, to hear more episodes. Access Spanish translations and get more info about this show. We'd love if you'd visit thehomecomers.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your homecomer story. Thanks so much to Wes Jackson, co-founder of the Land Institute in rural Kansas, for his blessing to use a term he coined, homecomers, for the title of this show. And special thanks this episode to Arizona Public Media's KUAZ radio station in Tucson and to research assistant Ida Herzog-Vitto at the Harvard Kennedy School. The Homecomers is an independent production of Free State Media. It was created and produced with support from the Ford Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University.